the reading today is from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. are we? Well, Royce did most of my job for me, so I feel pretty free. Uh, <laughs> honestly, it's so good to see you all. Uh, is it too late to ask Thanksgiving? Is that just days ago too far? Are we doing okay? We've gotten through that question for the first day, first 24 hours. We're, we're done with that question. <laughs> Who's counting down the number of days until break? Anyone have a calendar count? Okay. How many days until exams start? Anybody? That's awesome. Don't worry. <laughs> well, I'm kind of excited about that, but you don't know that. And then, um, how many days till the break? Anyone know that one? We're close. Close. Close is the answer. Uh, great. So, another great example of trying to make this interactive. Okay, so, let's just keep moving. <laughs> Those of you who don't know me, I am Sid Drew, and I'm the campus minister for RUF Reformed University Fellowship, which is a Christian campus ministry that does exist to serve you all in the campus. And I'll leave it at that. I'm going to let Royce's introduction spare us from the rest. Um, I will just say that I am really glad uh, to see you all, and if you're new, I would love to meet you, as Royce said, too. So um, what's nice about this uh, is that I get to kind of jump into the large group text. And we've been doing this topic called relationships. And this is our last large group on the topic of relationships. So we will talk about relationships again. Trust me, but we're not going to do this series for a while. Um, we're finishing a semester-long look at relationships. Um, what I've kind of called, subtitle, whatever you want to call, what does Jesus have to do with our relationships, with our marrying, with our dating, with our sex, with our singleness, uh, with our families and our friendships, and then tonight with our church. With, with what does he have to do with the church? 
back in September, we kind of did this giant big picture look and we the foundation of relationships. And in the last several weeks, we've been taking these glimpses at our relationships. We've asked, what does it look like to remember the good? What does it look like to acknowledge the bad? What does it look like to trust in God's healing for our families and for our friendships, for our dating, for our sex, for our singleness, for even our marriage? Uh, Very future tense for most people in the room. Get that. So tonight we're going to finish the semester by talking about the church. We're looking at the church. Why? Why are we looking at the church? Not maybe the natural thing you thought in the sex, dating, marriage series. We're going to talk about the church. Well, first, the the church community is a place where we work out our relationships. It's a big place of relationships. For Christians, the church is meant to be as meaningful as family, as friendship, and even as meaningful as romantic love. And that's why you often see the metaphors in in the Bible describing the church as a lover, as a friend, as um, a family of God. Second reason we're looking at the church is specifically for our seniors, uh, especially our December grads. So uh, we didn't want to let you slip by unnoticed. And so we're going to look at the ways in which we want to, as RUF, as a ministry, show you that we value the local church. We see our ministry on the campus as an extension of and mission of the local church. Uh, We're not a local church replacement. That's why we do the church announcements. That's why you have the church kind of descriptions in the back. Um, The practical logic of what this will, what RUF not being a replacement is, you'll face this if you're a senior in December or in May. Because you will look around your office complex and there will be no RUF. (laughs) You will look to the left and to the right of your strip mall, local strip mall, and there will not be an RUF between the GameStop and the subway. There's no RUF there. So I want to invite the seniors and the upperclassmen or and underclassmen or whatever you call people in between uh, to think about your future outside of your career and your work for a minute today. Tonight we're going to look at um, what the future looks like. What will Sunday and the rest of your week look like when you get out of this place? Why get up early one day a week when you don't have to get up early? Why sit in someone's apartment that you don't really know well and pray during the week, which is called a life group or a home group? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 are addressing some of this so what about the church. And we're going to look at that together. So before we do that, um, we are going to pray. Even though Royce did pray, I'm going to pray again, if that's okay. And uh, let's pray together. (laughs) Father, I'm thankful for this group of students. I know a lot's going on. This is a real busy week. Um, this is um, tough time, a lot of stress for some people. Uh, maybe some people are just waiting for it. It feels like the eye of the storm. Um, and I just also, some people really don't know what to do with you, Jesus. They had a hard time at home, or uh, they had such a good time at home, they don't want to be back here. Um, maybe, Father, that they're not sure why they're in this room, or maybe they're so sure um, and they're so longing to meet you. And I pray that you'd meet us wherever we are, um, that you'd come to us by your spirit, that you'd fill us, that um, you'd make yourself known among us, that you'd be more beautiful and believable to the eyes of our hearts, Jesus. Be more precious in our sight. Um, Help us to behold you and to become more like you. And that's our prayer. And we pray that this would happen through these words um, and through this time. In your name, Jesus. Amen. 
So this vision uh, of the church in Ephesians chapter 2 is really glorious, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, that's an incredible vision of the church. Racial reconciliation, peaceful end to hostilities, mutual growth, even good citizenship is in there. (laughs) It's a big deal. But our hearts and our minds can't help but swivel to personal experiences, right? Or even other people's descriptions of the church if we're not so church familiar. We think about the church and we think still segregated. We, we think often bickering, sadly defensive. Then there's a sinking feeling we sometimes have on Sunday mornings, if we're honest, just the utter indifference, the boredom. And during the news cycle, which has been really sad, can church clergy get more crooked? I mean, where is the glory? Where is Jesus breaking down or building up anything? These same criticisms blast most loudly in our songs and our TV shows, don't they? For instance, maybe you've heard this song, Take Me to Church. <laughs> okay, it's a few years old now. I mean, hopefully I get his name right. Hosier, his voice is good and gravelly. Was it? Hosier. Hosier, thank you. <laughs> that was my Midwestern accent, Hosier. <laughs> Maddie, my cooler intern, has to re- remind me. Uh, Hosier's voice is good and gravelly, right? The chorus is so catchy. The chorus goes like this. I'll probably try to pronounce it right. Take me to church. I'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lies. I'll tell you my sins and you can sharpen your knife. Offer me that deathless death. Good God, let me give you my life. And can you hear the sneering sarcasm? Add, the cor- add to that chorus verses like this. Every Sunday is getting more bleak, a fresh poison every week. And that's a fine-looking high horse that you've got in the stable. We've got a lot of starving faithful. Then there's the music video for the song, which is uh, it's a, it's sort of a documentary-style, gritty, black-and-white footage. Made look kind of real and a little bit older. And there's this angry mob, clearly representing the church, chasing around this shy, scared, single person around different street blocks. Um, they're looking to kill him or worse. Look, well, Hosier's Take Me to Church makes dramatic indictments against the church. There's also another kind of cultural discussion about the church. Saturday Night Live has some great skits, uh, one of which I really appreciate called St. Joseph's Christmas Mass Spectacular. I don't know if you've watched this one. It highlights just the awkwardness and the boredom of church, even at the high holiday of Christmas. Um, so you can watch this on YouTube. It's as funny as I think that Take Me to Church is catchy. Uh, and really, but before you do that, let me just kind of explain what it is. It's this fake commercial. That's why it's called the Christmas Spectacular. It's like a church made a commercial. And then they just sort of like, we're trying to convince you to go to church. Uh, and we see this kind of cast of uncomfortable characters. There's Pastor Pat up there who says everything at constantly changing speeds of diction. Okay, so slow, fast, slow, fast. There's Mr. Drubbler who's eager to say peace be with you while holding out the sweatiest hand you've ever shaken in your life. (laughs) There's the organist Linda Tejo, who takes 20 minutes to find the right sheet music and then still starts in the wrong chord. (laughs) And then there's teen soloist Bethany, who's trying too hard to sound that off key. (laughs) And finally, teen atheist Devin, who sits in the back, trying hard not to pray and to trying not to uncross his hooded sweatshirt arms across his chest. And then there's the painful events in this infomercial, this fake infomercial of the service. The sermon with the softest pastor joke, 
followed by the softest parishioner laugh you've ever heard, <laughs> plus all 44 verses of Come Ye All Ye Faithful. <laughs> uh, so I, you can sort of see it's, uh, it's obviously mocking the whole situation. And look, not everything SNL or Hosier says about the church is fair and accurate, right? But they make some points that clearly resonate. And these cultural images of Jesus' church kind of standing in stark contrast to what Paul is describing in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. At the same time, we have to give the Bible, God, and folks like Paul a little bit more credit than we do. Hostility and indifference about the church is not just our modern problem. They were also widespread, widespread complaints about 2,000 years ago when this letter was written. They were their problems, Jews and non-Jewish Gentiles. They were their problems too. And so you see Paul is pitching this ideal church to indifferent Gentiles and combative Jewish peoples. He's saying God through Paul is both describing what the church is and he's casting a vision of what the church should be and could be. So the first century and 21st century people like us can live better together and actually do church better. So what does that all mean in a sentence? Chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 11 through 22, is telling us God lovingly embraces messy and messed up people. God lovingly embraces messy and messed up people, and his embrace actually makes us into a place to share love for others. That embrace of us as we are helps us to go and love others as they are in a way that is transformed by his love for us. All right. So in the face of the subtle hostility and the boredom towards the church, whether it's 21st century or 1st century, Ephesians chapter 2 is telling us to remember and then discover two truths about the church. And these are on your handout, as usual, in outline form. First, you've got to remember God hugs messy and messed up people close to him. And we're going to see that in verses 11 through 18. And that's going to be the bulk of our time. And then the second point is to discover getting hugged by God makes us a place to hug others. Getting hugged by God makes us a place to hug others. That's verses 19 through 22. And those are points and verses on your outline, on your handout. But I'm going to start at the beginning, as I usually do, right? For our seniors especially. Um, we're going to begin at the beginning and we're going to look at verses 11 through 18. And we're going to see how God reaches out and he hugs close messy and messed up people like us. All right, let's look together at verses 11 through 13, and we start to see that Paul's addressing different groups of people. He's addressing people in the church who weren't Jewish, what that era called Gentiles. Then he writes verses 14 through 16 to those people who were Jewish. And then finally, in verses 17 and 18, he's writing to both people groups simultaneously. And really to understand these eight verses, it's important to understand this. Jesus and his first 12 followers were Jewish, culturally, ethnically Jewish. And, and then at the same time as that's true, the early church was majority Greco-Roman, majority non-Jewish. I'm using Greco-Roman pretty loosely here. Um, that means that they weren't Jewish, but also means that they primarily, can someone just knock that up, take that and close that door back there? I don't know. Don't knock on the door. Just close it. Um, anyway, uh, so thanks, Jonathan. So what does that mean? That means that like they weren't Jewish 
and but they spoke either Greek or Latin, even if they weren't exactly from Rome or Greece. So most of the people in the church are not of Jewish heritage, even though Christianity started as a Jewish religion. So Paul, like the rest of the Bible, is here actually intentionally addressing the divisive hostilities in the church as racism. And he's treating racism as a sin. He's saying it is a wrong that needs to be made right. But I want you to notice how Paul confronts racism, how he confronts nationalism, how he confronts ethnocentrism. In a hostile, very pluralistic cultural moment, Paul points everyone to a central historical fact. What Jesus did in his crucifixion forged an identity bigger than race and nation. What Jesus did in his crucifixion forges an identity bigger than any race or any nation. Look, race and culture are so important, but an identity grounded in Jesus is even more important, and it's open to everyone. Paul is telling us what unites us in Jesus is greater than what divides us. Therefore, the church has to be able to house and has to be able to welcome in multiple and different races, genders, nations, cultures, economic and marital statuses, as well as personalities. And we must learn to dance with the differences, to celebrate a wide and sometimes disruptive diversity, all grounded in the unity of a God-made man dying for every single people group. But verses 11 through 16 are not just a call to make Sunday mornings the least segregated hour in America and not the most. I think there we can see the need for multi-ethnic churches and ministries, okay? But these verses are also wrestling with our, with their in the first century and our, your and mine in the 21st century, our attitudes towards the church. So we're going to look at the Gentiles and the Jewish attitudes towards the church. And I want you to see if you can't find yourself in those attitudes. Um, and I'm indebted to a guy named Greg Thompson for a lot of the analysis here. So there we go. Don't, don't report to the honor council. Okay. In verses 11 through 13, Paul is primarily addressing a non-Jewish audience, what's called Gentiles. And he's calling out an attitude of indifference. So this is about the attitude of indifference in verses 11 through 13. The first century Gentile Christians felt like many of us feel in church. The institutional church is full of semi-weird customs that feel old or silly or just hinder my ability to feel that spiritual whoosh. For first century Gentiles, the church felt so different, so culturally Jewish but the non-negotiable ways of worship um, were just kind of respecting the way that God chose to reveal himself. We see this in these verses. The Gentiles, like us, are called into a story that is much, much bigger and older than any of us. Do you see that? Like, the church is honoring a history and a geography that goes back for a long, long line of believers that stretches across millennia and world empires. It's got this trans-global phenomenon. We're stepping into something that has gone on before us and all around us and will continue past us. And therefore, when the church doesn't feel like a good fit 
for our individual or our consumer-shaped needs, we need to remember we need to remember the gift of the church. We need to remember that whether it's Gentiles or 21st century wildcats, we are not owed the church. We are brought in by Jesus' mercy into the church. We're not owed the church. We're brought into the church by his mercy. Look, like the first century Gentiles, we're not owed what comes with church. It's a free gift of God. Scripturally, the church does contain ordinary acts of worship weekly. You know what those ordinary acts of worship are for? It's the ways that God promises to show up, especially show up in those moments and with those postures of heart. That's why we do what we do in church. But this is so hard to believe on a sleepy Sunday morning, isn't it? It's so hard to believe in a large group when everyone else is watching a basketball game. It's often hard for me to believe, to feel anything but discomfort, right? There's so many people that are so different from me at church. You know, like the old ladies that wear tacky holiday sweaters without any irony, right? The balding, overweight men who breathe so loudly that you can barely hear yourself singing. The hyperactive children whose hands are always sticky with God knows what. (laughs) Yet God shows up there. He brings us near to him there. He speaks eternal peace over our time-troubled hearts in that space and in that time. Because church is the one place on the planet where two things happen simultaneously. First, people who are drastically different racially, economically, socially come together on purpose in order not just to be next to each other, but to be with each other. It's, think about the places in our culture where people actually come together on purpose to be with each other who are different and they embrace that difference and they don't separate out. It's rare. Second, people come week in, week out to get God, to get his peace, to get his perspective, and to get his hope. And guess what? It's for free. For free. We don't actually have to do anything. It's not just free monetarily. You don't have to do anything but show up and ask. God does the rest. It's kind of wild if you think about it. But verses 14 through 16 push past this indifference and into another attitude about God's church. He calls out our attitude of hostility. The attitude of hostility that many of us had, and especially the first century Jewish Christians had. Paul tells us in Jesus that the laws of the commandments expressed in the ordinances, that's a mouthful, they've been abolished. What that means is this. Those rules that we humans make to, make to feel better about ourselves and other people make to feel us to feel worse. So the rules that we make to feel better about ourselves and other people make to make us feel worse, they're done. They're through. It's done. No more of that. Okay? Jesus' body was hung up on a cross to tear down all of the rules we make for what it means to belong. Jesus' body was hung up on a cross to tear down what it means to be in or out. Jesus' body was hung up on a cross to tear down the fact that the church is a mere social clique. It's bigger than that. It's broader than that. 
Jesus' death ended cultural rules like circumcision for first century Turkey, where Ephesus was. But it also ended cultural customs like looking timely or happy or put together or sometimes deep and spiritual in 21st century America. You don't have to do that. You get to come as you are. Jesus died so you can walk into any church with the wrong clothes on. Jesus died so you can walk into any church with a dark trail of guilt dragging behind you. Jesus died so that you can hear God's peace spoken over you, even if some people stink at passing that peace to you. According to verses 14 through 16, God tears down all the man-made walls between the first and the last. He tears down the walls between the most and the least. He tears down the walls between, between the scorekeepers and the rule breakers. He tears down the walls between the lovely and the left out. This is because in the words of Robert Capone, Jesus came to raise the dead. That's why he came. He came to raise the dead. What does that mean? He did not come to reward the rewardable. He did not come to improve the improvable. He did not come to correct the correctable. He came to raise the dead. But I love how verses 17 through 18 italicize all that comes before. We're told this, Jesus promises his peace to us no matter where we come from. He's promised his peace to us no matter where we come from. Look at this. God is busy showing up, arms brimming with kindness for every kind of woman, man, and child. Jesus is ever there granting acceptance. He's granting favor and freedom, even for the gossipers, even for the feuders who dress all of their feuding and all of their gossiping and holy wrapping paper. He loves them. He's there for them too. Listen to the way that Dick Keyes, an author, puts it. The church is for the people who are failures, even failures at doing church. But the church is a community of people under God that is a place of grace where God is still working in that wreckage to change us. In my zeal to rightly criticize what's wrong with the church, I sometimes forget that the church runs on grace. The church is a place of grace, unmerited favor, goodness and healing to those whose only outstanding feature is that they need goodness and healing. That's all we got. We can see grace on display in the verses that come immediately before our passage tonight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verses 8 through 9 of chapter 2. So here's my question to you. This is my application, right? Do you think of the church more as a hospital or a museum? When you think about the church, is it a hospital to you or a museum? Is the church a hospital to you? Is it a place where we get in because we have problems? That's our admission ticket. We need help. To God, the church is really the only place on the planet that's designed for us to be able to make mistakes. It's designed for us to be able to fail and to be messy. It's a place where we don't have to walk the psychological tightrope perfectly, thank God. 
We can say something wrong and nobody has to flip out. We can do something poorly. We can hurt, we can be hurt, and we can simultaneously be understood, feel safe, and get a hug. That's the church. Or is the church like for some of your friendships and family relationships? Is it like a museum for some of you? You know all the actions and the words and the thoughts are these polished relics that we kind of turn precisely to hide the cracks so no one sees the way we glue them together. I know this time of year, right? I know with what's going on academically, politically, and over social media, Davidson College oftentimes feels like a museum. We have to present ourselves well. Everything has to be just so, placed perfectly, spotlighted as masterpieces, so that people will like us, so that people will praise us. At least, at the very least, no one will boo us. We live under a red pen this time of year. We live under the coach's whistle. We live under the silence of a text that's not returned. For for some of us here, this is what church felt like growing up or looks like on the outside. But this passage, these verses 17 through 18, are telling us that church isn't a starched museum. It's a homespun hospital a place for the messy and the messed up to get healing. That's why the church sometimes stinks. There's blood everywhere. That's why it stinks. No one in the church has to say they're fine, and no one can actually say they're well in the church. But by faith in Jesus, everyone can say they have direct access to God. And we can say that we get some of his peace. We get peace with each other. We get peace with God, and we get peace with ourselves. Just imagine if we went to church expecting a field hospital and not a museum. We wouldn't expect to meet and greet already perfect masterpieces. We would expect bloody messes. We would expect row upon row of hurting hypocrites. And this would change the reasons that we actually go to church. Church isn't a resume boost. Church isn't an outlook calendar filler. Church isn't just something fun to do, but church does the trick if you feel like you're leaking. Yes, the church is full of wounds. The church is full of white-haired people, but it's also full of a double cure. Access to Jesus's healing forgiveness and belonging to the Spirit's med school. In the words of Henry Nouwen, the church makes us into wounded healers. Because actual community, I know everyone talks about community, community is a buzzword, actual community arises where the sharing of pain takes place. Not as a stifling form of self-complaint, but as a recognition of God's saving promises. I'll say that again. Community arises where the sharing of pain takes place, not as a stifling form of self-complaint, but as a recognition of God's saving promises. And verses 19 through 20 give us one such saving promise. And the promise is this, God is not done with his church, and he's not done with us. That's my second point, and it's mercifully shorter. God is hugging us, 
so that we might be a loving space for others. He's hugging us so we might be a loving space for others. And we see this image that God has for the church of people, Jews and Gentiles, hostile and judgmental and indifferent individualists, people like us. We are all pictured as a holy temple to the Lord. I could preach a sermon on that phrase, but I won't. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit, verses 21 through 22. This means that. God is taking leaking, bleeding out people, and he's making us into spiritual doctors and spiritual nurses. God is doing his healing work through his church's hospitality. How? How are judgmental, hypocritical, certainly uncool, sometimes hurtful people becoming a place for others to get peace, a place for other peoples to get acceptance that we all crave? According to verse 19, Jesus is transforming us at an identity level. He's taking singular strangers and aliens, and he's declaring them as plural citizens. By the power of his word, the word that made everything out of nothing, the word that sustains every molecular structure that I don't understand. By the power of that word, God's words, God is declaring us citizens, Do you know what it means to be citizens? We have full, inalienable, and shared spiritual rights to all that is God's. And as we meditate on our richly shared access to God and to each other, the people in the church's lives, they start to look as they actually are. We're interwoven, whether we like it or not. All of a sudden, in the words of the 16th century theologian, Zacharias or Sinus, when anyone prays alone in a closet, the whole church prays with him in affection and desire. When anyone prays alone in a closet, the whole church prays alone with him or her in affection and desire. All of us, in the words of the 21st century theologian Cornelius Plantinga, all of us fit into Jesus like differently directed spokes of the very same wagon wheel. Think of that image. We've all got the same center, and we've all got the same directions, with different directions in the same wagon wheel. But perhaps the best way to understand the way that Jesus is changing his church from hostility to hospitality is just for me to illustrate it. So I'm going to end with two illustrations, and I'm done. Okay, ready? First, um, I'm going to give you a song. Admittedly, it's not as popular and catchy as Take Me to Church. <laughs> Okay, it's a very popular and catchy song. It's called All Right Here, but it's no less powerful than Take Me to Church. There's a singer-songwriter, Andy Gillihorn, and he describes what the church is beautifully. He sings this. You don't have to send a message because there's nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to lose. Everybody's got their limits. There's only so much you can take. You don't have to be a hero and keep it all in. And then there's the chorus. You can weep like a baby. You can break and go crazy. It's all right here in my arms. You're all right here in my arms. That's the power and the glory of the church. You're all right here. You're all right here. And the church shows forth another kind of power and glory, another kind of grace. Not only is its ability to say you're all right here, the church has an ability to still be right here. I think sometimes we don't get this. We're still able to be here. 
He's not done with us yet. Here's what I mean. Paul probably penned this letter to the Ephesians around and during, probably during the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero. Okay? In 64 AD, there's this fire. Most people think Nero started it. But he blames this small, weird, certainly uncool group of Jewish, mostly Jewish and Gentile people called Christians. Right? And so began a massive, systemic persecution that resulted in the horrific death of many Christians, including the author of the letter to Ephesians, Paul. He dies in Nero's persecution. Christians like Paul were crucified, fed to beasts in the Colosseum, lit on fire to serve as torches, human torches, for, gardens, for Nero's garden parties. Crazy. Just a few centuries later, perhaps more crazily, the surviving Christians decide to build this amazing church called St. Peter's Basilica, what one modern scholar calls the greatest of all churches of Christendom. That's an architect. The greatest of all churches of Christendom, St. Peter's Basilica. And it's covered in gold if you've been there. It's just covered. And the artwork alone is so beautiful that they, have, they guide groups to see it. And when I saw it in person, I couldn't also at the same time as being just caught up in the grandeur, think about where did all this money come from? And where did it not go? It produced this profound indifference, this division within me. But amazingly, St. Peter's Basilica was built on top, I don't know if you knew this, on the top of the very place that Nero burned Christians alive. They purposely built their building as a physical statement. And this is the physical statement. It tells the watching world, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In the space of historical hostility, this place of gorgeous murals and gold-gilded doorways, I felt deeply divided. All of that's going on. But then there's this message all God's church, about all God's church, I continue to need to hear because this is what I've staked my mortgage on. You get that? I've staked everything on this. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A friend of mine, another pastor, of course, put it beautifully. God's church isn't going anywhere. Because it's part of God's eternal plan. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Look, the church, I know better than you, is a bloody mess. Wait till you work for it. Okay? Yes, it is boring. <laughs> especially when you preach sermons for a living. It can be judgy, especially when you're a religious professional. Yes, the church can be better. That's why I do this job. But God loves his church, and it isn't going anywhere. God loves his church, and systematic persecution can't destroy it. God loves his church, and the darkest evil is but a firm foundation it builds itself on. God loves his church, and Jesus gave his life for the church. So the least we can do is be a little bit more patient with it. 
God loves his church. And Jesus has taken the words of life and he's given it to his church. And I just have a question. Where else am I going to go <laughs> to get those words? I don't hear them anywhere else. And when at the end of the day, when I'm fed up with it, the hostility, the indifference, the crooked clergy like me, when I'm fed up with it, I go, where else am I going to go? You, Jesus, your body has the words of life, the church. Would you pray with me? Father, um, the pain of this is very clear to me. Um, but the goodness of it is so good. It's just, it's been a summer, it's been a semester just meditating on this, thinking through this, rolling in the deep with this. And I pray that you'd be with the students, that they'd be able um, to see the cost that you've put down for this <laughs> this human directed but God inspired and God um, sufficient God taking it over kind of institution and I pray that you would help us help us to see it as it's supposed to be help us to change it to make it the way it's supposed to be help us to love what you love and I pray that you would be with especially with the seniors who are graduating um, pray that you be with this last push for all of the students, including those seniors that are graduating in December. And I pray that you would remind us that there's a place to be ourselves. And that place might seem like the least likely, but it's your church. In your name, Jesus. Amen.